This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. At some point far in the future, historians will probably ask, what was daily life like in the early 21st century? Well, one thing we know for sure, nobody will ever point to these two clowns and say, This was how you should have been stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and our trusty holiday calendar says today is Quirky Country Music Song Title Day. Which is just in time because I recently came up with a money theme title you're going to love. Here it is. At least I was a millionaire when my dog died and my wife left me for the third time. Pretty good, right? Ah, I'll keep trying. But hey, let's focus on the millionaire part because as Joe's mom always says, glass half full, people. Here to talk about the millionaire choice, we welcome Terry Bradshaw. Oh my God, I love that guy in Failure to Launch. Oh, sorry, sorry. It's Tony Bradshaw. I'm sure he's pretty good, too. Plus, a recent study about Gen Z reads like a really awkward country song title. Fast promotions and big raises. What else does Gen Z want? Geez, here with the results of a new study we welcome from Inside Out Development, Bill Bennett. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline and a letter from the mailbag and still save time for me to strum my guitar to some of this week's incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are the awkward country music headliners on this podcast, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Howdy, folks, and welcome to Wednesday. I am Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter, and man, do we got a show today. Starting with, across the table from me, the other guy, or as we call him, OG. And that's an original gangster to you, actually. And um, what's up, dog? Yeah, that doesn't oh, no, go sorry, with our that's, country that's music country. theme. Um, no, uh, it's close. I am, the, I am the, if we don't want to be the original gangster, I am the uh, other guitarist. Other guitarist on this podcast. Absolutely. Yes. And you know where you learn to guitar? Probably, I'm sure. Absolutely. I do know, actually. But you're going to tell everybody else. Probably at Skillshare, because there's 25,000 classes you can take at Skillshare. Big thanks to Skillshare for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Skillshare is offering Stacky Benjamins listeners, listen to this, Stackers, two months, unlimited access, over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, head to Skillshare.com slash SB, Skillshare.com slash SB. Big thanks to Skillshare. We're also today brought to you by LinkedIn. We might need a new, uh, might need a new country songwriter 
for this year podcast. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacky Benjamins. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash SB. And you know what's going to happen there? Another reason to be a stacker. You get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. We're just saving people money. We're, we're like three minutes in and we're saving people money, OG. Going to be a great Wednesday. That's how we roll. We've, we're going to wrestle up some savings. We're gonna, that one? We're going to wrestle up Tony Bradshaw talking to us today about being a millionaire. The 10 traits it takes to become a millionaire. 10 keys to becoming a millionaire. So if you want millions, this is the show for you. First, we got some headlines, though. So let's get this thing cranking. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. And our first headline, here's a couple guys who wanted to be millionaires. Advisors charged with gambling away millions from clients. This comes from Investment News. Oakdale Wealth Management's James Daly and Michael O'Keefe of Massachusetts may be fined and censured. I bring this up because I think a lot of people at first blush, if you're working with an advisor, you may not realize, OG, just how how far the term gambling can be taken. Let me explain. The piece reads, Massachusetts securities regulators have charged two investment advisor representatives and their firm, Oakdale Wealth Management, with, quote, gambling away millions of dollars on unsuitable energy investments from more than 250 client accounts. Regulators charged James G. Daly of Franklin, Massachusetts, and Michael J. O'Keefe of Millis, Massachusetts, with violating their fiduciary duties to their investors a majority of whom were state residents and many of whom were also elderly by investing in high-risk energy investments such as oil and natural gas. The complaint alleges that despite warnings about the potential volatility of the energy sector, Mr. Daly, who handled most of the investment advisory business, over-concentrated nearly every client in energy investments regardless of age, risk tolerance, and net worth. In many cases, more than 30% of the client's portfolio was made up of energy-related investments, the state securities division said in a release. I want to stop before we get too far into this. So think about this if I'm an elderly investor, OG. Everybody's going to need oil and gas. Because of that, this is a very safe place to be. And we're only going to put 30% of your portfolio in oil and gas to make sure that we're still diversified. I can totally see an advisor selling this as incredibly conservative and not a bad place for an elderly client to be. Well, I mean, you can totally sell anything. That's the problem with sales. But 30% in energy stocks, I mean, frankly, everybody is going to need oil and gas. Well, until they mass market electric cars, but okay. The state said that Mr. O'Keefe, who acted as the firm's compliance officer, failed to perform any meaningful review of Mr. Daly's actions, though Oakdale's policies and procedures stated that the firm would tailor investment decisions based on each client's risk tolerance, the complaint states. That's interesting, too, because so many firms use boilerplate contracts and boilerplate advisory uh, registration documents. And it's funny because you can look through and read them all and almost everybody says that, oh yeah, we provide customized solutions. Da, 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 da. And you just think like, oh, it's no big deal. But it, it is a big deal if you don't actually do that. Yeah. You know, if you use model portfolios, you should say, 
yeah, we use model portfolios. We have about 10 of them and uh, clients fit into one of these 10 sleeves. You well, should say that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And that's a reason why I brought this up is that there's this thing, there's this term that uh, a lot of professional advisors use, and you might want to ask your advisor about, which is an IPS, an investment policy statement. An investment mm-hmm. policy, and by the way, even if you don't have an advisor, it's great to have one for yourself, and I'll tell you why in a second. But investment policy statement goes through thoroughly how your advisor is going to manage your money so you know what they're going to do, what they're not going to do. The thing I like about an IPS is that when things go bad, and looking at you fourth quarter of 2018, when things go bad, instead of panicking, you go back to your investment policy statement and you know exactly what your advisor is going to recommend. You know exactly what you should do. It's, it's this guidebook to how your investment's going to be managed. And I think if people had asked this, these advisors for their IPS, you might have been able then to ask some pretty good questions. I think the other thing that it does too is it gives you the opportunity to review what you said was reasonable in terms of the ups and downs based on the portfolio that you had. So let's take the other side of the coin here. Maybe they did have the discussion that oil and gas at 30% is a little risky, but that's a forecast that we have. Maybe they're, maybe the, that firm is more focused on um, you know market timing or something like that. And they're saying, hey, we think this is an opportunistic thing, but with this heavy weighting in commodities, there's going to be wilder swings. And so you have to be okay with, you know, a minus 30 uh, in exchange for that opportunity for the plus 60 type of thing in that section or that sleeve of your portfolio. And if that's the case and you have it written down to your point, then you look at that and go, Oh, we're down 28. Well, we said we might go down 30. So this sucks, but this is what we said. This is what we signed up for. Yeah. There's no censure then. There's no censure. The client, the client knows because it was in writing. This is what we were going to do. This is what we did. Everybody should be on board. Yeah, yeah. Would would have been no problem. Well, still probably a problem, but <laughs> still not not as big a problem. Well, and and that's interesting too. Not to belabor this point, then. So, if you're working on a problem, you can either look at the leaves of the problem or the root. And I really like the fact that with an investment policy statement. If things aren't working the way that you want them to work, instead of just changing it for today, you can work at changing the investment policy statement to more accurately f- reflect what you should be doing. You know, So the next time something comes up, because history repeats itself, you're not going to make the same mistake twice. Yeah. A new study out from Inside Out Development shows that Gen Z has some very very big thoughts about how they think the working world should work. And here, the gentleman who is the CEO there, uh, Mr. Bill Bennett, joins us. How are you, man? I'm great, Joe. Thank you. I'm so happy you could join us. Let's talk about this study because it appears that Gen Z has some very, very high expectations about the working world. They do. The vast majority of them, 75%, expect a promotion in their first year and uh, a third of them in the first six months going into a job. They've got themselves figured out. Right. Well, I was going to say, Bill, I don't know how old you are. I'm 51 years old. I think that might be a little aggressive, but is it better to come into the working world aggressive, or are those expectations too unrealistic? Well, I think it's good to have aggressive expectations if you're prepared to put the work behind it. And that was one of the other things that came out of it, is they're willing to put the work ethic and the elbow grease, if you will, behind that. The other thing, Joe, that we kind of thought about as we analyzed this is 
Oh, I won't say how old I am, but I was working for 10 years by the time you entered the workplace. Right. Um, I think we got to be careful not to interpret the word promotion in my baby boomer context or Gen X context. I think a lot of them are just thinking an increase, you know, an ability to have expanded responsibility and more money. And that may not be a new job. I think that probably is closer to what it means. But I think that's also important to know if you're an employer. I mean, one other thing I, I noticed in your study There was a lot in here about managers and mentorship that they're looking for. So for older people listening, really, if you want to keep Gen Z engaged, they're looking for you to step up. Yeah, they they expect, you know, one of the questions dealt with the term frequent communications, and the vast majority of them expect frequent communications. They don't want to be told what to do. They just want to know how they're doing and also to be able to ask questions and get direction and then get back to it. When you studied uh, Gen Z people, how many people were in this study, Bill? About 1,100. Okay. They were worried about education, but also worried about student loans. Tell me about that piece. Yeah. So there's only less than a third of them, about 30%, believe they're going to be able to pay back their student loans. And uh, nervous about it, I think, was the term we used. Yeah. So um, uh, a strong percentage of them, 80%, feel they've got to have a bachelor's degree in order to achieve what they want to achieve in their careers. But, uh, you know, they're, they're worried about that payback. Yeah. Is that a disconnect or do you think that's, that's the truth? Does that feel right to you that, uh, that you're going to need the bachelor's degree to get where you, you need to go? To be perfectly honest, I, I think that's a little bit of a disconnect. I think somebody shows up, gets a job, demonstrates that they're willing to think, you know, to work hard. I think that uh, there's probably, it's probably a little bit more liberal than that, but it's maybe not far off because they maybe won't get to get in the game in the first place. Uh, Back to bosses for a second. Once you get in the game, uh, one thing we didn't mention about bosses that I want to circle back to, 25% of people, according to your study, would leave an organization because of a boss who manages through fear, clearly showing that the carrot works better than the stick with Gen Z, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing, Joe, is, I don't know that any of us in any other generation felt differently. None of us liked, as we used to call him, the screamer boss. It's just that for us boomers, we didn't realize we had a choice. We didn't realize we were allowed to walk away when our boss was screaming at us. We thought it was part of the job. So kudos to them that they would take action in a negative environment. What's the biggest takeaway you think, Bill, from your study? Well, let's say one of the big surprises is as expected, they feel very strongly about diversity and inclusion. Um, But the surprise side of that was more than two-thirds of them said that they would take a job in a company where diversity and inclusion uh, wasn't handled that well in order to have a secure job. Job security resonated again and again and again. And so I think as an employer, if you're looking to to hire the, the cream of the crop of the Gen Zs, you need to be able to demonstrate that, hey, if you come in and you work hard, there's a path for you here. You're going to be able to learn and develop and to grow over time. I think that's a fantastic takeaway for everybody looking for quality employees. By the way, speaking of employees, you guys are always doing fun stuff at Inside Out. Tell the people that don't know about your organization what you guys do, Bill. Sure. We teach coaching as a leadership style. Our founder was a professional tennis coach who coached a lot of people into uh, various um, winning categories. And he started the company, started out as a sports coach. It eventually became business. And we employ a methodology that he developed that made that work for him to teach people on the business side, managers, how to, how to coach. And if you were to 
winnow it all down. It's really just about how do you ask good questions that helps people solve their problems for themselves. I love that idea of asking questions because usually just showing the mirror works a lot better than you trying to solve it for somebody. It does. And, and you know, the, I think the surprise to some managers who aren't oriented this way is your workforce is more competent and more driven than you probably give them credit for. Help them figure out the problem on their own and you're going to both be in a better place. How do people learn more about you guys and about this study if they want more, Bill? They can, uh, you know, come to uh, InsideOutDev.com. That's uh, short for development, InsideOutDev.com. And we'd be happy to uh, let them download anything they needed or give them more information. Awesome. And you know what? If uh, you're walking the dog or on your commute, we've got you covered. We'll have uh, the links to everything Bill and I talked about today on our show notes page at StackyBenjamins.com. Bill, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes on Dad Shortwave. Really appreciate it. (laughs) The connection was better than I thought. (laughs) We're always surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks to Bill for dropping by. And it's funny because Gen Z OG wants leaders, mentors. You know what their mentors want? They want good people working on their behalf for the team, right? Because you only go as far as your team can go. Mm -hmm. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, Naturally, you're going to want to hire the right person for the job. Maybe not somebody who thinks they should get a raise in six months, but you know, you want the right person. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your jobs because LinkedIn jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day so that they can learn and advance their career. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire somebody, your matches are based on so much more than just a resume. Your LinkedIn jobs matches are based on skills and background. Sure. But also interest activities and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Business is so much better when you work with the right people. So, so, so much better. And you know what, if you're going to be a mentor, I think to a Gen Z person, I think it's important too to uh, have somebody that you have good communication with right from the start. Like if there's, if there's not a match there, I was just listening to Tony Shea talking about uh, delivering happiness, the book about uh, Zappos, Mm-hmm. Which, which people have been telling me forever, I've got to read that book. So now on my runs, I take it with me. It is fascinating. And he talks about in that book how with his company before Zappos, they made a few wrong hires. And he said, I don't know when it went off the rails, but all of a sudden I hated going to work. My own company. I hated going there because instead of everybody being excited and on board, we made a few kind of, well, yeah, this will fit for today hires. And next thing you know, it's backstabbing and intrigue and people, you know, trying to move themselves up the, up the chain. Nobody's worried about the customer anymore. Everybody's worried about themselves. And so he said, you're all fired. I'm starting a new company. Yeah. <laughs> you're f- Actually, it's funny. He did wake up one day and he said he said that he hit the snooze like five times. And he realized the time before that when he'd hit the snooze five times was when he'd been working at Oracle. And he just didn't want to go to work. He's like, oh, yeah. my oh my goodness, I'm back there. And I don't want to live my life this way. So, no, you know what he did? He fired everybody and he used LinkedIn jobs. That's what he did. Perfect. May or may not be true. But... <laughs> Post a job today at linkedin.com slash SB. 
You get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash SB terms and conditions apply. And big thanks again to uh, Bill, as I was mentioning, for stopping by. I think it's nice to live in fantasy land, don't you? Well, they say uh, denial isn't just the name of a river. <laughs> I don't actually don't think it's fantasy land, like we talked about. I like being idealistic. Let's put it that way. Being idealistic well, is a great, great place to if start. Everybody was, uh, if everybody was a true helper and leader you know, above you and wanted to further kind of pass the torch, so to speak, but... Um, doesn't always work that way. And frankly, I don't think you want everybody to be a mentor or a leader. I think that those people are few and far between on purpose because not everybody's qualified for that. And more importantly, I do think that there's a little bit of that whole, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears type stuff. Like when you know what you need, then all of a sudden you find the person that you can lean on for, for leadership or mentorship or whatever the case may be. It probably doesn't happen in six months. Maybe not. I think that's our first lesson. It doesn't happen in six months. Second lesson is... Rome wasn't built in a day. No, but an IPS statement can be. So I think that's our second lesson is ask about your advisor's investment policy statement. And even if you don't have an advisor, what is your investment policy statement? That's the place to start. Well, Tony Bradshaw grew up in a lower-income neighborhood in Nashville, Tennessee, and in early 1996, he realized he was mismanaging his money and knew something needed to change. And after becoming a mechanical engineer, he spent the first six years of his career as an engineer and computer network administrator. In 2001, he entered the financial education world. We're going to let him talk about exactly what firm he worked with, but he's in Nashville. I wonder what big financial firm might be in Nashville. Hmm. We, no might, idea. we might get into that briefly, but Tony knows a lot about what it takes to go from poverty to a millionaire. And I think his story is inspiring and I'm so happy he can spend some time with us. Let's say hi to our new friend, Tony Bradshaw. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's our new friend, Tony Bradshaw. How are you, man? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I love this idea of being a millionaire is a choice. When did you start thinking about millionaire status? Wow. I guess it was it was fairly early in life, but not early enough, I would think, as I would like to say it. But uh, I grew up in a low-income family here in East Nashville, in Nashville, Tennessee, my hometown, which I still live in. You know, I went to college, did the deal, you know, the good things that boys do. And when I got out, I got my first W-2 out of college and made $39,000, but I was $16,000 in debt. You know, I was a math guy. I went to school for engineering, so math was pretty pretty good, easy thing for me to do. And I looked at that, and the math just didn't add up. And for the first time, I realized, you know, money's really just a math problem. And so I started learning everything I could about money. I knew I wasn't going to learn it from my mom and dad. They didn't teach me anything about it. My aunts and uncles and cousins, they were all doing the same thing. So I just uh, went out to Books A Million local bookstore here in Nashville and learned everything I could. So for 90 days, you know, I, I just studied, studied, studied. And when I poked my head up, I'm, you know, I learned that money really is just a math problem and I can do math. And so that's when I put together what I would call my millionaire plan, 
which my goal was to become a millionaire by the age 40. And I was able to do that before I turned 41. Were you more interested in the income side of that math problem or the cutting expenses side of the math problem? Because I find it, so do you, I think that a lot of people focus a lot more on one than the other. Yeah, I think for me at that time, you know, because you're starting that journey, right? Uh, learning about money, I think, is a really a lifelong journey. And once you start learning, you need to continue that learning process. And so for me at that early stage, it really came down to a couple of things. Uh, debt was the wrong direction. And so I was $16,000 in debt. So although I made thirty nine grand, I was 16000 in debt. So that's a $55,000 move in the wrong direction. And so that was pretty easy for me to see. So at that point, I determined that debt was my enemy. And so just like I say in my book, you know, destroy your debt before you just before it destroys you. And so I just started knocking out my debt as fast as I could. And so within about 18 months, I had gotten rid of my debt, but I had also built up about $18,000 in stocks and mutual funds. And so it was about, you know, one about a 12 to 18 month turnaround to get to that level. And uh, yeah, so for me, it was put sock it away, but get rid of the debt. So one fights against you and one helps you. Can we dive into that? Because, you know, a lot of people say pay off all your debt first before you start saving. Other people say, that, you know, that itself is a math problem. It sounds like you did both at the same time. You kind of 50-50 with your money. Was there a mm -hmm. mathematical equation to that? Yeah, I think what I did, I basically just said, and you hear other people say pay yourself first, right? And so I, I did a little bit of that and I said, you know what, if I did the math, I did the formulas and I said, if I put this much back into mutual funds and this much into stocks and I compounded at these, you know, interest rates and I was a little bit idealistic at that time, you know, was, I was new to this whole plan. And so my, my mathematical numbers were probably off a little bit, but it got me moving in the right direction. And so I believe at that time I was carving out about $500 a month uh, to sock away into mutual funds. And then I was paying a little bit into basically playing tech stocks and so trading, you know, Intel, Dell, things like that. And I was doing pretty well. I'll brag a little bit on myself. I was making about 60 to 90% on my money wow. every six to nine months. Holy yeah, cow. About every, the problem was I didn't have enough money that I was doing that with. So I was learning. And so it was more about learning money than it was about real money like we would be playing with today. But, was this during, by the uh, way, too, was this during the whole tech run up the late 90s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Intel. It was the war between AMD, Cirrus, and Intel. So I was juggling those three, watching what, you know, when the new tech was going to come out. And every manufacturer was picking different chips at that time. So I would just beat the chip by six to nine months. And then when that hit the market, it would get picked up and their stocks would skyrocket. And then I would just sell it off. And then, uh, you know, paid down the debt as fast as I could. So I paid my car off. I had a five-year note and I paid it off, I think, in about three years and got rid of that. And then I uh, got rid of credit cards. And I haven't used a credit card since uh, 2000, probably. You and I both know uh, quite a bit about poverty. And on the front of your book, you say millionaire or not, you can choose. And there are some people, obviously, that may have an, say there's an exception to that. There are circles of poverty and systemic poverty in places in the United States. But, but let's be clear. You, you said you didn't come from a family where they taught you a lot. You came from a pretty poor family. Yeah. I mean, you got your power getting cut off. Uh, you got your water getting cut off. You're wearing pants that are about two years too old and every girl in the class knows it. You know, and yeah, I love it, know, by the way, when you tell when you tell that story, let me let me tell this story for a second to everybody, because I like this. You're walking by and you're impressed because these girls are talking to you and you don't even realize what they're saying. And you kind of process it a little later. They're saying, hey, Tony, are you expecting it to rain soon? And you have no idea what they're talking about. And everybody listening knows exactly what they what they're talking about, about your clothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, I was not wearing the uh, 
favorable clothing of the day, the flavor of the month. You know, it's that wasn't something we could afford. So, but you know, it is what it is, and you kind of keep moving forward. And yeah, low income family, and and just kind of keep rocking. But there are families though that don't that don't do what you did and build their own education. Do you remember where that synapse happened? Was it the fact that your dad was self employed, and so you wanted to? I don't know, be self-employed too. I don't, I'm just wondering where that synapse hit, where it doesn't hit for a lot of people. Yeah, I think honestly, after writing the book and talking to different people and, you know, sadly my mom and my dad, nor my sister, even though I was on the goal to become a millionaire, I went through a financial class. My parents, my mom and my sister both went through that financial class as well. It didn't stick for them, Hmm. you know, and uh, now I was already past that class in my own mindset, but they attended it. And in fact, my sister's been through the class three times. And so uh, they didn't go on that journey with me. So even though they knew I was on that journey, they didn't choose to join me. And so they didn't make a millionaire choice. I would say they made a choice to remain in poverty and low income. And so without digging into that in too much detail, I think a a lot of people lack the ability to see a different vision for their own lives. They're kind of just stuck. And unless something happens to, you know, that catalyst. And for me, that catalyst was that W-2. Was that, that debt? Yeah. Yeah. That was what I call my financial awakening. That kind of shook me loose. But it's funny also, I, th- I just think about that moment. I think about the fact that there's lots of people out there that get that W-2, having the ability to look at that W-2 and say, something's got to change, you know, is still a big, a big moment. You have early in the book, your 10 keys of becoming a millionaire. And obviously we're not going to have time to dig into these, but you certainly do in uh, the millionaire choice. I just wanted to touch on all of them so people can see exactly what the, um, I guess what battles they're fighting when it comes to being a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Your first key to becoming a millionaire is to develop strong character. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I don't believe you can build or keep wealth if you don't have strong character. And so you see that even with rich people, the richest people in the world. You know, sadly, Michael Jackson, he made a lot of money, $450 million, but had a lot of financial struggles as well. Uh, you just go through any of the NFL players, any of the rich people, you can find that same problem. It's repeatable. And so you have to wonder what causes them to hit those kinds of problems. And if you don't have strong character, you're not going to have work ethic. Those are the things that give you the ability to actually do something with your life. And so, unfortunately, of mass majority of Americans watch about 120 hours of TV a month. That's a full-time job. That's not a good use of your time or your, you know, your character building character. So I saw that that's crazy. Somebody the other day told me that the average person, according to Netflix stats, watches over five hours of Netflix a day. And I thought a day, I, number one, <laughs> I think I would love that. But, but, but number two, who's got that kind of time? Like, I don't even have that time. To, where, where do you come up with that time? I don't know, man. I've got six kids, so I don't know where that time comes from. <laughs> well, the other thing too, about strong character, it sounds like what you're kind of talking about here is, is you got to think about your reason. Think about what you're, it's almost like Stephen Covey talks about having a mission statement. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and you know, the five character traits I use, integrity, responsibility, self-discipline, uh, work ethic, and focus. And so a, a lot of those I actually learned from my parents, even though they didn't have the financial wherewithal, they did have a, a strong character. So I was able to pick the strong character up from my parents. Yeah, that's same for me. I mean, my parents are some of the hardest working people I know and uh, definitely took that from them. Number two is maximize your time. This is a big one, by the way, speaking of Netflix, five hours a day. 
Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, the TV stat I just gave you, but I also think of the time when AOL was coming on, the internet was, you know, making its ascendancy. And I remember sitting down at Logan's restaurant and talking to a woman there. It was a, a local Nashville meeting, and there were probably 40 of us around the table. I looked over at her, and this is when AOL per hour cost like $1.95. And I said, oh, how much time do you spend online? She goes, oh, about 40 hours a week. And I'm like, you're spending 80 hours a week just on AOL chat rooms. For $80, like $80 a week. Yeah, eighty, yeah. $80, yeah, $80 a week, uh, 40 hours a week. And I'm like, that is just blowing my mind. But, I mean, that's what the society that we're in. Of course, today it's Facebook and social media. But you're not getting your li- you're not putting the right things into your life if you're spending that much time on things that don't really pay off. How do you do that with all of the the things that you've done in your life? How do you control that then? Do you wake up at the beginning of the day and start with your calendar? I mean, how do you intentionally get that done on a more tactical level? Yeah, I think I go through seasons. And so I'm I'm not saying that I'm the best at doing that every time of the day, but I've had ebbs and flows in that. Uh, obviously, with six kids, our schedules are pretty crazy, but I'm at my best when I get up in the morning. I go to bed at night and look at my calendar and go, what do I have going tomorrow? The night before. And, yeah, the night before. And then I get up the next morning and look at it again. And go, is there anything I need to change or shuffle? So you're always reviewing your priorities for the next day and really looking back to accomplish what I needed to, resetting and then starting off the next day. When I'm at my best, that's what I'm doing. I like, when I'm at my worst, I'm obviously wasting time. <laughs> well, and wasting time means somebody else's priorities. I think when you do that the night before and look at it that morning, you're focused on the big rocks that need to move instead of email, which is everybody else's big rocks that they want me to move. Yes, Exactly. Number three is to get money smart. You did that. Where does that begin? Yeah. So uh, I would say on getting money smart, you know, step one would be getting a primer. So for somebody that doesn't have any money experience at all, you know, grab a book, grab my book, grab somebody else's book. There's a lot of books out there. But then also realize that learning about money is a lifelong journey. And so this is what blows my mind is, you know, as much time as we spend in, you know, school and high school and college learning math, English, history, you know, name all the subjects there's a lot of time involved in that. But yet, how much time does anyone really spend learning about money? So once you start, you got to get started. Everybody starts at the same place. That's what's so cool about it. You just may start a little bit later if you're older or start a little bit earlier if you're younger. You still all started at the same place. So I think some people feel a little apprehensive going, hey, I'm stupid. I don't know anything about money. Well, guess what? Everybody, even myself, I was stupid about money until I was 25. And there are other people who are stupid about money until they get older. But you got to put the effort in, you know, and that's the thing. That's why you got to manage your time right so you have that time invested in yourself and, and learning. Number four is to find a money mentor, somebody smarter further along the journey than you. Yes, absolutely. So, and I, I love the fact that I listened to your show and heard Nicholas Stuhler on the other day with his book, The Truth uh, Shall Set Your Wallet Free. And he's talking about financial advisors. And uh, one of the things I probably didn't have present in my life as much as I would have liked to have early on is a financial advisor or a money mentor. That's something I learned later and how important that was. But somebody you can bounce ideas off of that, you know, preferably is a millionaire, you know, uh, that's a good thing to go, hey, they know something about money. They've hit a certain level of status. Not everybody that's smart about money has become a millionaire. They're on their way, you know. I like to have two sources, a money mentor and a financial advisor, because just like if you go and you get diagnosed with cancer, you're going to get a second opinion. Yeah. And I think they serve, uh, you can counteract those opinions and like say, hey, what do you think about this? This is what I'm hearing. So you just get a second opinion. Napoleon Hill, a name that I'm sure you know, talks about a mastermind. Do you have a money mastermind or a mastermind of people about your career? 
Uh, not right now. I just have a group of friends that I talk to, and and uh, I, those are things that I need to put in in place. But yes, I think that would be, that would be good. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Miller. He's a friend of mine, yeah. and uh, he actually, yeah. Do you know Dan? I do know Dan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just saw him at Garcia's restaurant uh, the other day. And See, I think that if you know Dan and you know people that know Dan, you have a uh, mastermind. You don't call it a mastermind, <laughs> but you really do because he's going to give you his opinion about where you're messing stuff up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But he was pivotal in a career change that I made. And oddly enough, he uh, came around back into my circle as I was writing this book. So I'm reestablishing connection with him. But yeah, he's a fabulous resource. I was interested in, you have these as two different things, Tony. You've got uh, Get Money Smart is your number three. But then number five is Watch Your Money. Does that mean set up tracking systems? What does that mean? Yes, exactly. So uh, you need to have a budget. I prefer to call it a spending plan because when you use the word budget, my wife doesn't like that word. She gets nodded. She gets tense. She almost wants to leave the room. And I've seen a lot of people react that way. So I think budget itself has a very negative connotation in the emotional psyche of who we are. So I choose to call it a spending plan because everybody likes spending money, right? Yeah. And so, and I try to make it as simple as possible. So I'll break it into four money groups, uh, living money, wealth money, play money, and other money. And the problem with you know becoming financially wealthy or well-off is people don't pay enough attention to that wealth money group. So I really just want people to pay attention to four groups, simplify the thing as much as possible. Uh, just south of you, uh, where you live, and you're looking at me like, where the hell are you going with this, Joe? J- just south of you, I went to this town recently, uh, Franklin, Tennessee, which is absolutely gorgeous, as you know. It looks like a Hallmark movie. How do you go to a place like Franklin, Tennessee, where you could spend tons of money and feel good doing it? Like before you make a trip to Franklin, do you set yourself a budget? This is not a budget, excuse me, a plan. This is how much money we're going to spend. Do you have an allowance? Do you and your wife give yourself allowance? Like how would you negotiate going to a place like that? Yeah, I think for me, you got to have a big picture with your life each year. And you got to go, here's my annual goals. Here's my plan. I need to put this, if I want to become a millionaire by a certain date, I know how much money it's going to take. And I got to hit that financial goal every year. Now, by then you can choose to accelerate it. So once you get those big annual plans in place, then you can decide how much of that slush cash you want to play with. And so that allows you to have fun in life. And yeah, I would exactly do that. I would set aside, hey, we've got a Franklin trip coming up. How much are we going to spend? You know, are we going to chintz on the the accommodations and go cheap so we can buy more stuff? But the main thing about that plan is to always keep your eye on that wealth ball to go. You know, if we always hit that goal, we know we will build this level of wealth for our family and enjoy life. And the rest of it kind of all falls into place. That's why I break it down just into four big rocks. That's funny. They say that, um, you know, different, different successful people have, have variations on the theme. But when you know there's a common truth, it's when you hear it over and over and over. And I hear from some people that budgets are baloney. People start off with what they need to do to reach the goal. And then the rest of it kind of takes care of themselves. But having the spending plan just makes it easier to know. I, and, and I love here, it's almost like the four food groups. I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's a great way to think about it. Next is avoiding personal debt. This one was obviously big in your life. Yeah, so uh, for me, it's really understanding that debt's your enemy. It really is your enemy, and there, you know, seventy eight percent of Americans live in paycheck to paycheck. Being real transparent here, my mother passed away in two thousand sixteen, and when she passed away, we found out she had about racked up about fifty thousand dollars in debt. Wow. Uh, it was it was a car, it was you know credit card trips, things like that. 
And uh, it just wasn't a good situation. 67-year-olds be $50,000 in consumer debt like that. It's just not a good plan. Fortunately, I got that out of my life real early, and my wife and I were on the same page, you know, no debt. I was engaged to my wife, paying off debt before we got married. I'm like, hey, I'm marrying her debt, marrying her. I might as well get rid of it now. And uh, we were able to knock it out pretty quick. But, yeah, it, it holds you back. That's just my belief system. I know people leverage debt, uh, but it's not something I personally do or believe in. I know that early in your book, in your acknowledgments, uh, one of your acknowledgments is to Dave Ramsey. You say he's an amazing man and leader. Your influence, mentoring, care, and generosity over the years has shown me what a servant leader should be. You you were at one point COO of that organization. Does a lot of that anti-debt, is that from the Ramsey organization or were you already on that train before you got to the Ramsey organization? So a little bit of a funny story here. I actually got on that wagon as soon as I started learning about money. I was age 25. I actually didn't meet Dave Ramsey and didn't know who he was until 1998 when I was in a premarital class with my wife. And there was this bald guy up there talking about <laughs> money and debt. And he asked the question, you know, which credit card do you pay off first? Which loan or debt do you pay off? And I just raised my hand. I said, the smallest one. And little did I know that three years later I'd be working for him. Yeah. And uh, and so it was that mindset that our financial philosophies are, had already aligned. Aligned three years before I, I went to work for him. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That, that is that is pretty interesting. It was nice seeing all the people that you acknowledge at the beginning of the book. Obviously, you have a you have a strong network of people around you. I don't have time to get to the rest, but let me go through them so people don't scream at their device while they're listening, Tony. Uh, keeping your expenses low, saving and investing aggressively, boost your income, which I also think is a big is a big thing. I know when I've counseled people in the past, it's not always an expense problem. Sometimes it is an income issue. And earning more income, I think, is big. And then last, creating your millionaire plan. I guess to put a cap on this, why is creating your millionaire plan last in the book instead of first in the book? Yeah, I think you've got to gain the knowledge first so you can pull all the pieces together. A lot of times uh, financial planners are going to take bits and pieces or you're going to learn bits and pieces along that journey. What I really wanted to do is give people a way to take everything they had learned, put it into one package. You know, whether it's what's your debt plan, what's your income plan, what's your spending plan and, you know, your millionaire plan, because you got to have a goal, right? Yeah. And you need to cross that goal line. For me, it was age 40, and I thought I did pretty well until I met the young man that grew up in Compton, and his goal was to be there by age 30, and he made it. He beat me by 10 years, and I'm like, well, maybe I'm not so special, you know? And he came out of low-income poverty, you know, L.A., low-income poverty, and he just li- he chose to make a different family choice than his his father made. But the millionaire plan at the end, it's, you got to tie it all together if you don't tie it all together. And I don't like to call it a financial plan. I prefer to call it a millionaire plan because it has a very specific goal. I absolutely uh, loved walking through these, and I love the fact that it's point by point by point. And if somebody wants to make that choice, uh, it is a uh, uh, well. My copy is is already pretty dog-eared. Let's just put it that way. The book is the Millionaire Choice, Millionaire or Not. You can choose. Uh, where do people get it, Tony? Yeah, you can pick it up on Amazon or any major bookseller. They're all available there, or you can visit uh, themillionairechoice.com, and that'll direct you over to one of those book sites. And you also were nice enough to, on your website, make a special landing page for our Stacking Benjamins listeners. You've got themillionairechoice.com forward slash Stacking Benjamins, and I notice you also have some extra resources there. Yes. Awesome. Feel free to hit that up. 
you know what? We'll let people be surprised by this because I was pretty surprised by what you're offering there. Some good, some good stuff. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I hope they get some use out of it. You got a great show and I just really enjoy what you're doing uh, to educate people about personal finance. It's something that's really needed, well, especially you, in our country. Well, you know, that's all an accident. If you learn something, as everybody here knows, keep it to yourself, Tony. All right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. All right. Take care. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And besides being Awkward Country Music Title Day, it's also the anniversary of the day Viagra was approved by the FDA. Now, I've been thinking hard about trivia on Viagra, and although some ideas have grown on me, none have really risen to the occasion, you know what I mean? So I know that Viagra itself isn't a company, it's only a drug, but if it were a stock, I'm sure that thing would be shooting straight up. But really, when you think about it, here's the question. What one stock has lifted the spirits and put smiles on the faces of men and women everywhere? Which company makes Viagra? I'll be back with a solid answer in just a moment. I'm telling you, Joe, I could keep this up all day. This is pretty cool, OG. Gertrude has been working on her skills, skills with a Z, in graphic design. And I told her, I said, you've got to take this, you got to take this Skillshare class on graphic design. And she did. And she had made some graphics for us for our meetup last Friday, where we were hanging out, watching hoops with everybody mm-hmm. in the Detroit area. That was so fun. But anyway, she'd made a graphic before she went and started taking some of these Skillshare classes. She's still taking now. And the second graphic she made was so much better. And it, it was so fun. So that's why, by the way, on the Stacky Benjamin's credit card, you'll notice there's a new Skillshare. Ah, okay. You're preempting me for the uh, for the upcoming American Express bill review, <laughs> the quarterly review of, of uh, Stacky Benjamin finances. The good news is we're getting the first two months for free. Oh, well, then you don't have to tell me anything then. I did want to head you off at the pass. Actually, it's funny. My subscription is already in month number, beginning month number uh, four here shortly. Mm-hmm. And man, the classes- You're all about skill sharing. It, it sharing is. skills. Well, you know what I realize? It's, it's lifelong learning. And it's also just in time learning. Like mm-hmm. it's learning stuff that I need to apply right now. And I find that uh, that really helps me with the show. The Stack of Benjamins brought to you by Skillshare, obviously. <laughs> As always- Skillshare is an online learning community for creators. More than 25,000 classes are there in design, business, and more. You can discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and career. Take classes in social media marketing, mobile photography, personal finance, creative writing, even illustration. So whether you're looking to discover new passion, start a side hustle, gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning, thriving, and reaching your goals. I've mentioned several times now those design classes. Uh, so good that I've already referred Gertrude. But other classes taught by Gary V. I bet a lot of our fans like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, you know, Mr. F-Bomb, as we call him. Or, uh, or Simon Sinek. Not many F-Bombs in his game. He has a lot of questions, though. He does have a lot. Like, of why? Yeah. Why? But he always starts with that. Why? It's like a two-year-old. Why? Could you, see, bed. Why? could you see Simon Sinek following you around the house? Why? 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 Because the dishes are dry and I Why? have to unload the dishwasher. Why? Because I like pork chops. Why? 
Because chocolate milk tastes way better. Why? I don't make the rules, Simon. <laughs> I don't know. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you stackers. Two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare's offering Stacky Benjamin's listeners two months of unlimited access, over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash SB, Skillshare.com slash SB to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash SB. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and good news. Joe's mom just baked us all some blue cookies for the anniversary of Viagra's approval by the FDA in 1998, a move that surely lifted men's spirits across this great land ever since. I thought today's trivia question would get a rise out of you. What company makes Viagra? In 1989, while looking for a treatment for heart-related chest pain, Pfizer originally discovered the medication. Well, how's the stock performed ever since? Well, since 2000, the S&P 500 has more than doubled in price, while Pfizer, ticker symbol PFE, if you want to take a look at the stock, has been pretty flaccid, really, finally approaching the same price it traded at that year. Maybe Pfizer needs a little blue pill for its stock, know what I mean? See ya! He's a comedian. I don't know. I think it's pretty hard to make uh, Pfizer and Viagra jokes. Perform. That stock price needs to start performing. Maybe it should uh, hold hands in a bathtub with throw, Eli Lilly. Throw, throw, throw the. I love in the. It isn't that commercial. It's a Cialis one where the guy picks up the. He's got the football and he throws it through the tire swing. Oh yeah, all the double entendres. Oh in my show. goodness. Where he's. Yes, when the time is right. <laughs> he makes. <laughs> he makes a tent. He yeah. does, doesn't he? Yeah. He does. He's putting up a tent. Oh, they're all they're all like little little things like that. I didn't even but, notice that one. Like I totally remember the one you're talking about. That yeah. one went right over my head. Yeah. yeah, all the scenes are ridiculous. It's great. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and we'll tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. And we asked our friends what they value first. And uh, our friend Julianne said blankets and air conditioning, depending on the day, because she lives in Texas. That's so true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Blankets or air conditioning. Good call, Julianne. The real answer is your loved ones and your time, but you should be comfortable with your loved ones. And then you want to spend more time with them. That's why they've created a modern way to buy quality term life insurance. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Now to get a free quote, lots of, I was just talking to my friend, Brittany over at Haven Life. She's going to, by the way, be coming on our Facebook page to help answer your life insurance questions. So she's going to tackle how much life insurance is the right amount, what to look for in pricing, about uh, how the medical exam works. We're going to also talk about automation in that area. Lots and lots of, of stuff. And we'll have more about that in our newsletter. But for now... Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, and you'll get a free quote from them for your life insurance. Let's say hi to our new friend today. We're throwing out the Haven Lifeline to David. Hey, David. Hey, Joel. And uh, crap, uh, I had it. Uh, man, I cannot remember that other guy's name. Uh, this is embarrassing. A anywho. Hey, guys, this is Dave. 
And I had a question about the term accredited investors. The internet says you have to have a net worth of at least a million bucks, not counting your personal residence, or you have to have a hit podcast like your guys's and make a couple hundred grand a year. Well, I'm not quite there, but I still wonder what's so special about accredited investors and why there's a distinction. I've heard investment sales pitches before on other podcasts that claim they can get 10% returns with crowdfunding real estate or 8% returns with tax liens, but we're only allowed to deal with sophisticated or accredited investors. So my question is, is the accredited investor club really that much better than what the rest of us can do? As advisors, do you guys have a different investing mission statement for accredited investors than you do for me and the three other listeners of this podcast? I would ask neighbor Doug, but he's probably out signing autographs and kissing babies and stuff like that. That dude's a legend. Anywho, thanks for the help and don't forget my shirt. That guy stepped up. Just to all the stackers out there, David just completely owned you. Everybody who's called this thing, he has completely pretty, owned you. Pretty well thought out. Pretty well, pr- pretty good. That bar was high already, but David just made the bar a hell of a lot higher. So listen up, stackers. Are these still Pfizer jokes or? <laughs> They're not. That, that's, you're on fire. I'm just saying, he stepped up. He brought it. He David. earned the shirt. If we're giving you a shirt, you better earn the shirt. He earned the shirt. We should vote. Like when you ask your question, we should vote at the end whether or not you earned your shirt. Like a, and then, like and then maybe up, you don't get it. Like like down. Caesar, where we have the thumb down. <laughs> accredited uh, investors, huh? Accredited investors. Great question. Yeah, it is. And... um I think he kind of already knows the answer to this question based on how he uh, framed it in the context of like, you know, some other places that sell things to, uh, we can only deal with accredited investors. So the the rationale behind it. We've had people on the show before, especially on like FinTech Friday, where it's only accredited investors. So we're there too. Yeah. The advent of this years ago, and arguably it should have been increased years and years ago was that if you earn a certain amount of money every year or you have a certain amount of money and you've identified those as being a couple hundred grand, 300,000 or a million bucks uh, invested, then you can take certain risks because you have so much money or you have the ability to create money that other people can't. So there's all these different rules as it relates to product disclosure and product placement where... If you're creating a product, let's say you're creating a real estate thing or you're creating a hedge fund or you know something like that, contrasted to creating a mutual fund or an ETF, which is available to anybody with a pulse, you have to follow different rules and they're more lackadaisical, so to speak, if you only say your product is available for quote-unquote accredited investors. And so the SEC came out with this rule of what is an accredited investor. They have the number now. It's a million and 300,000. And the general theory is, is that if you are accredited, you can take greater risks and you're also more sophisticated because apparently if you have more money, that makes you smarter. And uh, it's a big, big fallacy and faulty thing. I think it's a giant way to screw people out of money generally. But um, well, I think I mean, let's just go back and look at the reason why it was created. It's a protection for people who may not be as savvy. I won't. I won't draw a line. I mean, the lines could be arbitrary no matter what the hell you do. So what do you base it on? And so I can see the problem there. So it isn't right, but the meaning of it is to 
make sure that these that the risk profile on these investments is acknowledged. I think a lot of people think it's an exclusive club, not so much an exclusive club as it should be a warning bell that if this is only available to accredited investors, that this does have a different layer of risk attached to that portfolio. I also think because of the new crowdfunding rules that have come around that are kind of skirting a lot of the uh, accredited investor rule, that there's, you know, there's a big number of people that think that there's a lot of investors don't know how to do the right research, will not do the right research, are now going to get hosed in, uh, in, in with their investment choices. And I'll give you a quick uh, analogy there. If you've ever backed stuff on Kickstarter, uh, which is a platform where they make stuff, you know, let's say I got this mug I'm drinking out of and, and I want to see this mug be made. I can be somebody that funds the making of that mug, and then the mug manufacturer might give me a reward for helping out, like a, a mug or a mug cheaper, or maybe I get you know a coaster to put my mug on, something like that, because I helped. A lot of people think that Kickstarter and pre-order are the same thing, and they're not. They're not by a long shot. <laughs> they're not. That's and, right. And there's tons of disclaimers. There's tons of things that talk about the risk at the bottom of every Kickstarter I've ever backed. At the bottom, it says, there's no assurance that we're going to make anything. You're going to give us a bunch of money, and then you're not going to make everything. Maybe we'll make it. And look at when Kickstarters have gone bad, how many times people have filed petitions, have gotten angry, have, have spewed all over the internet that they got ripped off. And you know what happened? They were just unsavvy people that had all kinds of disclaimers in their face and they still decided not to follow them. And now it didn't work out the way that they magically thought it was going to. And so they're going to, that is what these rules are meant to prevent is some of that. And and will it prevent all of it? No, but I think we're going to see more of that with the crowdfunding stuff. Yeah, I think it's that. And it's, it's the assumption that if you have more money, then you must be more sophisticated, which isn't true. We know that. But no, but where do you draw the line? Do you make an investor take an IQ test? Oh, yeah, I know. What you, I, I, mean, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah there's you just no. Have to pick, you have to pick a line in the sand and just call it a day. If I'm a regulator and I'm making that rule, I mean, we can even talk about whether that rule should exist. But if I am making that rule, at, at some point, I've got to throw a dart. Yeah. Well, it should increase because it was created a long time ago. And um, I've not known it to be above or below the number that it's at. So. I like your analogy there that it's a uh, it's it's more of a warning bell than anything um, because it has to follow different registration rules and different risk profiles. So a little bit more swinging for the fences, probably. Thanks for the question, David. Great question. One that I think um, I think a lot of people have wondered to themselves. And now they've got they've got the answer. Uh, Doug just brought down the mailbag and we've got this note here from Michael. Michael says, hello, Stacky Benjamin's team. I've only been listening for a few weeks, though I'm really still waiting to learn something, anything really. Uh, however, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how to do all the, quote, right things for long-term investments once the U.S. market begins to recess, which history tells us is not a matter of if, but when. Are there ETFs that focus on shorts that are meant to be held long-term? In times of recession, is it wise to reallocate and include something that benefits from the downward trend of the market? Currently, I have my investment wealth in approximate thirds, managing my own brokerage account, which consists mostly of a dozen low-cost ETFs, 
and using Schwab Intelligent Portfolios for the other two accounts, one of which is focused on U.S. markets, one of which is tailored toward their traditional settings, which include more weight toward international markets. Thanks for the question, Michael. And we've got a very, very simple answer, I think. The layers of market timing in this conversation (laughs) are just so profound. So when the market's going to go down, shouldn't I try to time it? Buy stuff that's only going to go up when the market goes down. <clears throat> is there something? Yeah, I can, sure. Is, if you know how to do it. <laughs> is there something I can buy long term that might uh, help when the market goes downturn, so I don't have to time the market during that time, but it really won't screw me when the market goes up. Yeah, that was the other question. Yeah, yeah. Can I buy something today that will just kind of sit in the sidelines, and when the market goes down, then it activates itself. Is, somehow I make all my money. Is there a uh, is no. there a uh, a magic blue pill since it's that day <laughs> that will help that us? That only makes the stock market go up. <laughs> makes my portfolio rise. Yeah. So no, there's not. There's nothing to do here, and and it's really funny because this is another great example of, although he didn't say it, so 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 maybe he maybe he recognizes. That he's not, but um, but he said low cost investments, right? I've got a portfolio. I manage my portfolio of low cost investments. By definition, that makes you an active investor, and uh, we know that that doesn't work. We know that actively investing, meaning making decisions that you think will be better, statistically has a very poor chance of working. You could be right sometimes, you'll be wrong sometimes, but probably more wrong than right. And we can see this through the performance data in aggregate of what people really get with their investments and what investments really do through a lot of studies. The long and the short of this answer is is this. You can't do anything to predict the next recession. You have no idea when it's going to happen. But here's the good news. No one in this world has any idea when it's going to start nor do they know once we're in it, when it's going to end. So when do you find out that you're in a recession? Well, by definition, we would count that as the stock market going down 20%, right? So were we in a recession or bear market, I guess? Were we in a a bear market in December? Eh, Not really. 19.9% closing. Almost exactly at 20. But when would you know that you were down 20%? After it already happened. When you're down 20%. So when can you find out? Like today might be the top. When you're listening to this show, it could be the top of the, of the S&P for the next two years. But when will you find that out? Two years from now. So it's impossible to actually predict it. There's plenty of people who are on TV and on the radio that will suggest that they know. All they do is they just say it repeatedly over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And then when it happens, they go, see, I told you. Market figures out a way to disappoint the greatest number of people. Uh, you mentioned a couple of different things, some low cost investments. I'm assuming, you know, let's call them ETFs and your intelligent portfolios at Schwab. The best thing to do when the market goes down 20% is to back the truck up and get as much money as you can invested. I mean, think of it this way today, the stock market's at whatever it's at, it's pretty much about what it was, give or take, in September or October, or August, depending on when you're listening to this, of 2018. So at those times, if you would have had the opportunity to say, oh, you can buy your $100 worth of worth of dollar cost average today in your 401k, or I've got a better deal for you. I'm going to give you 20% off of today's prices. 
just because I'm a nice guy. So, you know, your S&P 500 fund was supposed to be $100 a share. You're going to buy one share with your 100 bucks today. I'm actually going to make it worth 80 bucks. And your 80 bucks uh, and your $100 now buys a little bit more than one share. Well, you would take that deal. But then when it happens, when we get to the end of December, all through October, November, people are going, oh my God, the recession is starting. It's like, holy cow. No, that's what we want. Until you take the money out, until you need the money, why the hell do you want to pay inflated prices for it, given the choice between the two? Sure. I'll take the discounted price. So uh, we can all pray, those of us who are not yet to retirement, that we do have a recession, that, that we, we do, do have, have a just that we market. have Just that we have volatility in general. Yeah. I mean, please God. If there wasn't volatility, you wouldn't get market returns. That's the trade-off. That's what people don't understand. If you want 10% in the S&P, if you want to average the S&P return, which, P.S., most people don't. Well, I have an S&P 500 fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't average the S&P return. And I'm not even counting the little bits of expense ratios or management fees you pay your advisor or whatever. I'm talking about the fact that most people will sell it when it goes down. Most people will look at their 401k on January 5th and go, oh, that thing sucked. I don't want that anymore. Now, nobody in our audience does it. Of course not. Because everybody we talk to says, oh, in 2008, I stayed the course. Bullshit. It didn't happen. And if it did, I will grant that maybe you did it, but you did it with a very inconsequential amount of money. Especially inconsequential to what you have now, compared to what you have now. Yeah. And, which, and so, which, by the way, means, which, by the way, means, even if you did do it in 2008, in 2019, that doesn't mean a lot. It sure doesn't. Because let me tell you this. If you had $200,000 and the market went down 20% and you're at 160, you go, eh, it sucks. I'm pissed. Whatever. If you have $2 million and it goes down to 1.6 million, I guarantee you're freaking out. Because we look at money through the lens of how fast we can make it. This is an observation that I've had. I don't have any scientific evidence for this. This is just <laughs> musings by OG. But when you know, we make $100,000 a year and our portfolio is down 40 grand, we put that in the context of something that we can experience, which is I make 100,000, my portfolio's down 40. That's like down January through May of my paycheck. If you have 2 million and it's down $400,000, you go, holy hell, that's four years worth of money, not including taxes. Oh my God, I got to do something. And there isn't a person among us who can say that there is no breaking point for them. Everyone has it. So and this key- is where th- this is where going back, I think, OG, to that idea we talked about at the top of the show about having an investment policy statement really is important. Because I remember I remember when I was creating my investment policy statement and creating model portfolios. I was tweaking those portfolios to see how they responded under different stimuli. And I was going back and back testing them in different, uh, uh, different timeframes to look at how all weather those portfolios were. Now, what's funny is on this show, things like the S and P 500 come up all the time. Like, Oh, well, my advisor didn't beat the S and P 500. The the S and P 500 never came up once while I was creating those portfolios. It was, how do I get X return and take the least amount of risk possible getting that return. That was my thing. And then how would it respond when the market goes down, when the market goes up? But that was all in an investment policy statement, not anything that will activate when the market goes down, not looking at a recession, not looking at, at, at didn't have to include any of that stuff. The only way that you can average 
market returns is if you take the L, to use a phrase from my kid's Fortnite game. You have to take the loss. There is no way to accurately predict, I only want the ups, not the downs. There are products that try to do this. And we were talking earlier about sales and stuff like that with the accredited investors. So one of the problems with different products is that they, they don't tell the whole story. So you'll hear a dinner seminar or you hear an advertisement on the news for a product that only goes up, never goes down. You can never lose more than you invested. But what's the trade-off? The trade-off is you have to take away the volatility. That's the trade. That's the trade that you make every single day. Because if you want no volatility, you have to be okay with low returns. If you want a little volatility, then you go fixed income. If you, are, if you want 10% returns, you have to be okay with minus 30. It's going to happen. And there's no way you can see it forecasted in advance. There's, there's no way to prevent it. And the minute you start monkeying with it, when it's down 27.9%, you go, oh my gosh, I'm getting really close to my breaking point. I should do something. Because we think that. We think, well, I should do something. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. I got to do something. The minute you do that, you take the opportunity to average all that out and get your 10% or your 9% or whatever you need to reach your goals. You take that off the table. It's not going to happen. I remember Dr. Daniel Crosby when when he was on, friend of yours and mine, and he uh, was talking about how as humans, we have an activity bias. And it's so hard for us because in most everything else you do, staying put sucks. Everything else yeah. about your life, your career, they, your yeah, your yeah. relationships, all of that stuff. Doing 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 nothing is horrible. So, to your point, OG, bam. When the market goes down, you think your activity bias in your brain kicks in. I got to do yeah, something about I, this. I got to do something. Well, I got to do something about this. That's right. So hard fighting against who we are. Uh, I think too long didn't read. Don't do anything. Stay the course. Thanks for the question, Michael couple of great questions today. Nice job team. Good job stackers. High five. If you got a question for you got a question for the team, head to stackybenjamins.com and uh, you'll see all the ways to interface with us. Of course, the Haven Lifeline is the way and uh, David's getting the code for him Gertrude for the greatest money show on earth Haven Life shirt. Fantastic shirt. I love that shirt. We also get reviews of this year podcast and today's no exception. Mom just printed this one off and put it on the refrigerator. I laugh, I cry, and I learn nothing. Five stars. I still wonder what people who are brand new to the reviews of Stacky Benjamins think when they read down through these. I laugh, I cry, I learn nothing. Oh, that sounds great. Five stars. The format's perfect for my drives to work, and I honestly feel like this podcast has helped me make better decisions financially. Sometimes I wonder if Joe would want to do longer interviews with some of the guests and maybe post them separate. Great show, great content, Ooh. and always fun. You know what's funny is- Interesting uh, idea. Yeah, just as an aside, we did that. Um, we had a podcast for a while called The Green Room. We did that, and we turned out that the market for that was far smaller than uh, than we thought. We had a few people say, yeah, that would be cool. It was cool, but I think you get long-form content elsewhere. Our goal here, for those of you that are new to the show, is to be the first word in personal finance and to help people become interested in the topic that don't even want to be 
at this table. I mean, I don't know. You get two money nerds together, OG, and they start talking about PE ratios and sharp and beta and alpha. And it's fun for you and me. OG and I will sit at a bar all day and have that conversation. Well, I'll listen to it. The problem is I get bored to tears with a discussion on a topic that I'm not already interested in that goes that deep. So if, if we can just help people get interested in the conversation, that's us. And for us, that means two headlines, a quick interview, two letters, we're done. That is, that is the introduce you to the deep thinkers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we will introduce you all day long to the people you should move toward. And I feel bad because I do feel like sometimes people think we're going to be like those shows our jobs to introduce you to those shows. We, we had somebody, by the way, gave us a nice review, but said, rye, relevant, and trim the fat. It ain't going to happen. That's not who we are. I feel bad when we put a bag over your head. We have Doug at the beginning of the show, say live from Joe's mom's basement, and people still think they're going to get a really deep, deep, deep conversation here. It's, it, we, we try to give you clues. Our jobs to introduce you to that stuff. That's, that's where we sit. So, uh, Okay. But. <laughs> You're looking at me like I've got something else to add. Well but, uh, said, my friend. But on that note, thanks for that, by the way. And I and I just needed to be able to to say that because of the fact that that's not the first time we've heard, hey, uh, how come you don't have a longer interview with people? If you like Tony Bradshaw, you know what you do? You go buy his book. You get it at the library. You go study. Tony's awesome. I mean, Tony was the CEO for the Dave Ramsey organization. You think we didn't do some research before we brought Tony on? Gene Chatsky on Monday. Go listen to Gene at Her Money. Fantastic person to listen to. I think yep. that's our role. So great question. Thanks, by the way, for all of the reviews, for all the notes, uh, for hanging out with us last week or on the West Coast, East Coast. We're looking at you next. Midwest, looking at you after that. And South, we'll be back. We will. We, I promise we'll be back. I'm here. So like there's, <laughs> yeah, we just got to have a meetup there again. We just got to do, we just got to do another meetup after you fly back home. All right. That's going to do it for today. By the way, one more thing, just before we kick this over to Doug, OG's calendars just about filled up for the first six months of the year. So if you're thinking about asking OG and his team to work in your corner, stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG, his calendar's filling up quickly. So if you want to get in, anytime soon and don't want to wait till fall stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, what's your, we've learned today, man. You know, Joe, I don't know why you always ask me this every episode. You're here for most of the episode. You should listen to your own stuff more often, but I'll help you out. Here's what we should have learned today. First, worried about having enough money to reach your goals. No matter your starting point, take a cue from Tony Bradshaw and build your millionaire mindset. It all starts with telling yourself that you can. Second, do you work with young people or are you a young person new to the working world? Realistic expectations about the job market and figuring out ways to either be a great mentor or to find a great mentor are keys to success. But the big lesson, do not, I repeat, do not tell OG that it's the anniversary of Viagra being approved by the FDA That guy is now in full-on party mode, and it's only Wednesday. Hey, OG, some of the rest of us have to work down here. Easy on the Barry Manilow music, man. Special thanks to Tony Bradshaw 
You can find Tony's book, The Millionaire Choice, through his site at themillionairechoice.com forward slash stacking Benjamins. Yeah, folks, you heard that right. TheMillionaireChoice.com forward slash Stacking Benjamins. Thanks to Bill Bennett, CEO of Inside Out Development, for joining us. You'll find more on Inside Out Development at InsideOutDev.com. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Welcome to Five Movies in Five Minutes with my good friend OG, the podcast after the podcast that keeps on trucking. OG, you've been on a lot of planes lately. Lots of planes. Lots of planes coming up. So different than our big, long uh, reviews of movies, today we're going to hit quite a few. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start a stopwatch. We're going to talk about each of these for less than a minute. Okay. Ready? Starting the, whoa. I got six. Mom's got the uh, mom's got the natives running restless. Something like that. Yes. All right. Uh, here we go. Ready? Go. All right. The first one on the list is Bad Times at the El Royale. Did I, you see this one? No, but I saw the preview for it and it looked really interesting. Very weird. Very weird. It's, Super it's a, weird looking movie. Yeah. I liked it. It's very gory. It's it's bad. It's bad. Is it it is like, not a kid's movie. It's R plus. It, is it like Django? Bloody? Uh, not like Django bloody, but it's bloody. Yeah, there's just a lot of stuff going on, and it's an interesting way to lay out the story. Western, um, Western, or current day? It's set in the late '60s, early '70s ish time period. What happens? Um, you got 15 seconds. Yeah, it's a good movie. You'll like it. Yeah, but what's what, what, what's the storyline? I can't tell you. Really? It's, it gives it away. Yeah, I can't tell you the storyline. I'm gonna it's be just on a whole a, bunch of people at the hotel. I'm gonna and they be all on have a, different stories. Playing in a couple weeks. Bing, okay. there's minute okay. number one. First man. I saw first that. Man. We talked about first man. What did you think? We did, our, we did already. Um, meh. I hated the ending. I absolutely love NASA stuff, and I'm a geek about that. Yeah. I thought the movie was incredibly slow. Yeah. Well acted. Incredibly yeah. well acted. I thought Claire Foy was great. I thought that uh, that uh, uh, Ryan... Uh, yeah, whatever the hell his name is. 
Yeah, Ryan Dreamy. You're cutting into my hour or my I, minute. I know, but you didn't, like the, and Oz. you didn't like the You didn't like the ending. Hate the ending. It was terrible. It was you know, it's a movie about going to the moon. Been there, done that. We need to go to the Mars. We should have a movie called Mars. But <laughs> how much time I got left? But it was good. We got uh, twenty seconds. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, really long, very slow, pretty screwed up also. Like if half of the stuff that they went through is true, like in terms of how stressful it was, you know, that's pretty impressive, you know, that there's still people that are willing to do that. And but, some uh, of the mistakes that, that they made yeah. along the way. Yeah. That was bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Peppermint. This is a shot of the dark. I haven't even heard of this movie. <laughs> of course you haven't. Uh, this was like, oh my God, I've seen everything on the plane already. So I got to find something else. Jennifer Garner oh. is uh, taking her kids, uh, her kid and her husband out for uh, ice cream. And um, they're killed by drug lords. The Tr- family is everybody. The but family. Her. Yeah. Well, she is, she is injured too, but she gets better. goes off the grid. Oh boy. Comes back. With a vengeance. I have seen this. This is almost like Taken, right? Where he's coming to except get the bad guys. Yeah, except everybody's dead. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't think I need a minute on this one. <laughs> no, no. We, we got 20 seconds right. left. We can devote it to the next All right. thing. All right. White Boy Rick. I love the trailer on that movie, but huh? then I saw the reviews. The reviews didn't match up to the trailer. What'd you think? Yeah. Um, you know what? I kind of liked it. It... Um, Again, really screwed up. Like as you kind of get when you find out the whole story about this, I I'm not from Michigan and I didn't know anything about this story, so that's why it was sort sort of intriguing for me. Long story short, this kid was arrested for drug possession and drug sales and all that sort of stuff after kind of sort of being put up to it by the FBI and by the Detroit police, and he was in prison for like 35 years. I don't know the time, but he's like the longest running nonviolent offender in in Michigan history and he got arrested when he was 17 or 18 for seemingly inconsequential like cocaine sales or whatever he was selling I, th- I thought uh, on the previous the relationship between him and his dad looked really good uh really backwards yeah well backwards yeah. but I mean that seemed to be a good part of the movie seemed to be a good like something that a would keep me bit, watching like his dad was not a good influence no no, his dad was doing his own bad stuff, which kind of let, you know, let him astray a little bit. And then it just if if half of it's true, where where he this kid was basically just led on by the FBI. Screwed up. All right. Next, next one thing. is uh, Widows. That one I really missed out on. Really wanted to see who done it. So this is a story. It starts out with uh, uh, career criminals. There are four four folks or three men who are uh, robbing someplace. They get in a firefight, get hurt. They go to their safe house. Police are there. Basically, everybody dies. And um, this all happens in the first minute and a half or two minutes of the movie. And um, the people that they stole from, all the money is blown up or whatever. People that they stole from show up at the ringleader's wife's house and says, yeah, your husband stole $2 million from me. You've got a month to get it back. And she says, I don't know anything about my husband's job or activities or anything. And he says, I don't really care. So this is a story about the women banding together to try to figure out how to make this right by doing bad things, of course. It looks so good. And uh, it's got Colin Farrell in it, um, Liam Neeson for a brief moment, and then uh, Viola Davis and yes. a couple of other actresses. That yes, I yes, know. yes. So I liked it. And the last on the list here is Front Runner. Did you see this one? No, Hugh Jackman. It's about Gary Hart's yes. presidential campaign 
in the eighties. I saw the preview for that. Yes. And it disappeared. Uh, I never saw the movie, even in a theater. It's on American, brother. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where they go, where movies go to die. (laughs) American Airlines. Uh, Front runner. I actually like this one, too. It's, um, again, just being just just young enough to not be, you know, participating in the presidential election of 1998. Or I'm sorry, 1988. I was involved in the 1996 one. But the... uh, the 88 one was just, just too young. I mean, I knew it was happening and that sort of thing, but, uh, but all the controversy around, apparently he was going to beat the pants out of Bush. Yeah. yeah. And, um, he was way then ahead. He, then the scandal hit. And then he kind of, uh, he had some certain foibles that, uh, caught up with them and, and, uh, it was kind of an interesting, interesting story. Hugh, uh, Hugh Jackman, who is, uh, kind of sort of one of my favorite actors right now. You know, I like the the disparity of work that he does. But um, anyways, the breadth of it. work. Yes. The breadth. Yes. Yeah. The depth. Good stuff. There it is. Six, so yes. Six shows, yes, six minutes. Maybe. Meh. Yes. 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 There you have it. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric who is such a giving person, Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website. Resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. And Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.